Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. We come to you as a church of sinners saved by grace. We come to you knowing that our hope is in you. Our confidence is in Christ's accomplished work. And because of that work, we can go through all kinds of circumstances with joy and humility and do so with unity. And that's what you teach us in the book of Philippians. You prepared this church in Philippi to apply the gospel they received when Paul proclaimed it clearly in Acts 16. God, I am asking you this morning to do the same here with Sovereign Grace. I pray that you would apply the gospel that they have received to their lives. Apply it in such a way that we are united in mind and purpose and we are humbled by it and we are joyful no matter what circumstances we have to face, no matter what adversity we, we deal with. We, we pray, God, that the truth that we learn in your word will establish us on a firm foundation so that when the storms of life fall upon us, we will stand firm on the rock of Christ Jesus, knowing that we have a citizenship that is not based on this earth, but based and anchored in heaven in Christ. Let us remember that you are working all things together in your providence to accomplish your glory and our good. We pray that we would understand that as we study your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, we are beginning this new sermon series in Philippians so that I, I pray you will be strengthened in your hope in your hope in what God has promised you as a believer, and in your hope of what God provides for you in His sovereignty as He directs your lives as you come to trust in Christ. He, he places us sometimes in uh, difficult situations so that in the crushing and the pressure of life, we are weaned away from the world and we are drawn closer to Christ and we, we exemplify Christ-like behavior when we go through those kinds of trials. That's what we saw happen to Paul in Acts 16. In Acts 16, Paul was crushed, if you will, in many ways, and he produced a sweet aroma unto Christ in the crushing. There was a, a beautiful act of worship that was displayed through his suffering, as we saw last time as he was arrested and, and placed into prison after being beaten. And through that, the Philippian jailer was converted through God's providential placement of Paul in a prison. And God was praised. Jesus' name was exalted through his persecution. So I want you to be strengthened in the hope that persecution, adversity, difficulty, etc. in our life is, is working out for our good and for God's glory. And I want that to strengthen you this morning. I want it to strengthen you because God has made a promise to you in his Son that all these things are working together for our good if we are called by Him and if we love Him. He is causing this to conform us into His Son's image and weaning us away from the image of the world and trusting in the world. So we'll be studying that as we go through the entirety of the book of Philippians. But this morning what I want to do is, again, give you a little bit of background information. I'm going to read some of this straight from my notes because it's just some technical information that you need to know um, about the church at Philippi, the establishment of the church at Philippi, the, the conditions and historical context surrounding the church at Philippi and this letter in particular. So let's just begin. If you had an outline, there's a place for you to write some of this down if you want to. Just, it, it's important to have a, a historical, contextual understanding because whether you know it or not, you've probably read Philippians many, many times. Whether you know it or not, Apart from this historical foundation, you're missing a lot of the really important truths. When, when you don't realize that this book was written and sent to a colony of Roman, retired Roman veterans, you, you really don't gain the, the importance of some of the statements until you understand this. Because Paul talks about standing firm. He talks about having one mind. Well, he's talking about the mentality of a Roman soldier. So it's important for us to understand this background. The city of Philippi was first occupied in the 6th century B.C. It was occupied by settlers who named it Crines, or the Springs. 
because there were many water sources there. They, it was abundant in water. It was a place of, of life giving water, so to speak. It was also a place filled with much gold that was mined out of the, the mountains around that region. And that was one of the reasons that the next person that came along was interested in that city. And that person's name was Philip II. And the city of Crines was renamed Philippi after Philip II of Macedon. Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. And this was around 358 B.C. when this happened. And Philippi has, has significant historical meaning. There, there is much that happened there that, that really caused the, the Roman culture to, to prosper in this region. Philippi was the site of one of the most significant military battles in Roman history. In 42 B.C., Here's some names you'll recognize. In 42 B.C., Mark Antony and Octavian, later known as Augustus, they conquered the Republican forces of the assassins of Julius Caesar and Cassius and Brutus. Augustus turned Philippi at that time into a Roman colony. And he placed, at that time, as a reward, he, he placed those, those faithful Roman soldiers, those veterans of these, these civil wars and all their supporters, he placed them in Philippi and actually rewarded them with property there. So this colony was made up, primarily at this point, of retired Roman soldiers. And these Roman soldiers, as they were placed there under Augustus, under his leadership as a Roman colony, they were given all the privileges of Rome itself. They had special citizenship they were exempt from many taxes. They were blessed in many ways as a Roman citizen there, even though they weren't in Rome proper. Again, that's, that's very significant because you, you remember reading in Philippians and Paul talks about our citizenship in heaven. Well, he's talking to Romans who prided themselves in their citizenship in Rome. They looked at that as the, the height of their glory and he says, don't forget, don't forget, this isn't your home. Rome is not your home. Heaven is your home. And, and listen, church, if we don't keep that in mind, um, when Rome falls, we're going to fall with it. When the world around us collapses that we trust in, we're going to collapse with it. But if we recognize that our home is in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, we're here as pilgrims, when all this around us falls and crumbles, we are standing firm on that, that rock that is in heaven, which is Christ. And he has a purpose for our life and a purpose for our ministry here on earth, just as he did with Paul. Paul came to Philippi as a Roman colony. He came to Philippi on his second missionary journey. He didn't stay in this city long. He, he came there in Acts 16. We read about the account there. Um, he didn't stay there uh, very long at that time. But he ended up coming back and visiting this church two other times, one on the way in, one on the way out. And later on, he, he wrote this, this letter of Philippi or Philippians to the Philippi church, and he sent that to them by the hands of a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. And, and Epaphroditus was a, was a faithful leader in the church at Philippi. And and his loyalty probably tied back to him probably serving as either an elder or just one of the leaders of the church in some degree. And what he did by carrying this letter was, was magnificent. I mean, just, just imagine this. This church needed encouragement. This church needed direction. So they, they looked to one of their leaders and they said, here, take this letter. We, we have a, a gift. We want to give to Paul and, and take this news about what's going on here to Paul. And then Paul turns around and receives it and writes them a letter to, to give them the biblical encouragement they need. But for Epaphroditus to do this, Epaphroditus had to travel 800 miles by foot. It would have taken him over a month. And when you read the, the book of Philippians, you find that Epaphroditus is sick. And no wonder I mean, he could have been sick because he could have been plundered by bandits. He could have been sick because he was worn out. He could have caught something along the way. Yet he was a faithful messenger of that church at Philippi, and Paul was amazed by this because when he did this, when this happened, when Paul writes this letter back, there's been a time span between Acts 16 and the letter to the Philippians of 10 years. This is a 10-year-old church. 
that still rejoicing, that still looking for Paul's direction, still wanting biblical answers for their problems. And so Paul is thrilled about Epaphroditus' bringing of this news about the Philippian church. And so he responds in, in the book of Philippians with probably the most intimate pastoral letters in the New Testament. And that's really the reason we're looking at it as a church. Because Nate and I desire to pastor you and care for you when you go through difficulties and challenges. And I think it's important for us to find the, the best care that we could find for you. And that best care would come from God himself as revealed in scriptures to another church like you who are faithful and pursuing God's will. He writes this to encourage, to edify, and to equip this church. And in a way, it was a thank you letter to the church for their service to him. It was the church at Philippi that was one of the churches mentioned in 2 Corinthians that was from Macedonia that was giving out of their poverty to the work of the ministry that Paul was participating in. And, and Paul is writing out of pure joy back to them, thanking them for what they have done in the ministry so that the gospel of Christ could go forth in and throughout the world. It's a personal letter. It's a pastoral letter. It's a joyful letter. It's a theological letter. There is, there is one of the, the greatest doctrinal statements in the New Testament mentioned in chapter 2. There have been volumes and volumes of books written about chapter 2's theological statement. It's a deep letter. It's a doctrinal letter. And it's a letter that was written in the midst of adversity and difficulty. It was written while Paul was sitting in a prison, most likely in Rome. And he was in a prison for preaching the good news, preaching the gospel. According to Acts, you can look at Acts, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but you can look at Acts 16. The church at Philippi would have understood Paul's difficulty because they met Paul in a time of difficulty. The church was established in difficulty. It was born in adversity. Yet when you look fast forward to Philippians, it was, though born in difficulty, it was still a joyful community, a humble community, a united community, because they united behind this Epaphroditus and said, we need help. We need help. And God, God has given us this book to help us, just as he gave it to them. In, in Acts 16, you, you see where, where Paul comes in verses 11 through 15, comes on this, this journey. He sails from Troas. He made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, the leading city, this main city, this important city in this region. And he comes there and for the first time he preaches the gospel on European soil. This is the very first time that the gospel goes forth in Europe. And it comes first to the most unlikely of candidates. It comes first to an independently wealthy proselyte, religious woman, Lydia, a Gentile, who had at least superficially converted to Judaism. It comes to her. It comes to someone who, frankly, within Judaism, probably would have never received this kind of honor and privilege and just response from the Apostle Paul as he, as he comes to her and he sees she is willing to listen. He proclaims the gospel and God opens her heart to receive it. She receives the gospel and then her and her whole household are saved. Then God moved Paul from that point, as we covered last week, into the marketplace, so to speak, there in Philippi. And there he used Paul to set free a demon-possessed girl. And that, that act of grace and mercy that set her free also locked Paul up. He went against their culture, he went against their finances and the profit, and he was used by God to be placed in a prison so that he could proclaim not only the gospel to set free the slave girl, but also the Philippian jailer and all those who heard the gospel as he and Silas sang praises in the middle of the night for what God was doing in their lives. And you understand, I mentioned this last week, when he was placed in this prison, and at midnight he was singing. This was 12 hours after a beating by Romans. 
by retired Roman soldiers who showed no mercy, who hated Jews. And then at midnight, in this time of difficulty, they're singing praise. What's going on? Paul, Paul had hope not in his circumstance. He had hope in the sovereign God who was over his circumstance, that God would use his difficulty to declare the gospel of Christ to people who Paul could have never been able to reach out to on his own. You know, he would have never probably had access to the inner workings of the prison had God not placed him there. See, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is very practical. We, we don't wonder about certain things. We know certain things. We know that God works all these things for our good and for His glory. And that, that gets us through difficult circumstances. In Acts 16, Paul's confident expectation or Paul's hope was that God was doing that. God, God caused all these things to work together for Paul's good and for God's glory. He knew that. That was his hope. And that hope drove Paul into difficult circumstances for the glory of Jesus' name. And church, that, that, that holds true for us. If you don't have your hope built on Christ, though, when difficulties come, when temptations come, when persecution comes, you will want to give up and back away and run. But when your, your foundation is built on this confident expectation that God placed you here to be faithful, you can persevere in difficulty. Scripture is clear over and over again that God promises, and this is a promise, this is a promise from the God who cannot lie. God promises that He will be at work in the believer's life for our good in every circumstance. Every circumstance. And through that, He'll bring glory to His name in every circumstance. Paul believed that. Paul believed that even, even his scars would lead people to Jesus. Look, look at 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine? You, you, you go with Paul on a missionary journey, and, you, and you, you put up your tent that night, and you're sitting around the fire, and, and everyone's talking about the day's events, and Paul tells you a little bit about this conversation he had with this Philippian jailer, and he's rejoicing over the, the grace of God, and, and then Paul gets ready for bed, and he pulls off his shirt. And you begin to see, you begin to see the gospel laid out on his back. You begin to see that he had this confident expectation that even his beatings would lead people to the one who received the greatest beatings on our behalf, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't count his life as his own. And church, Paul was not the exception. All Christians throughout history have seen this. They've seen and understood this, and we need to understand this. This is not, this is not a social event. This is a life-changing event relationship with the living God that transforms everything. And he, he saw this and he, he knew that, that he believed in a God who would use even his difficulties to, to do good to him and to bring glory to Christ's name. And that's what you see he, he testifies to here in 11.24. He says, five times, I believe he's speaking about even what happened at Macedonia at Philippi, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's most likely maybe speaking of the Roman beatings. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul, Paul knew all these circumstances, all these situations, all these difficulties were in God's providential purpose for him. So that he could experience weakness like the churches who go through the suffering that would follow. He, he, he could sympathize with them. He could 
Tell them, I know that God is working all things out for His glory and for my good. That's what Romans 8, 28, 29 is talking about. In every circumstance that the Apostle Paul faced, he, he learned, no matter what the circumstance, that he could rejoice in God's promises and God's providence. In church, we can too. We have the same promises and we have the same God of providence. He is in control. And, and Paul, Paul's only requirement that he was given by the resurrected Lord Jesus was be faithful with my message. You preach Christ and Him crucified. You leave all the rest of this up to me. And if we're going to do that as a church, if we're going to follow the Great Commission, if we're going to be His ambassadors, we're going to preach Christ and Him crucified, we need to accept something and be, be comfortable with something. We will face difficulty. We will be accused of many things. We will be slandered. We will be persecuted. We will be shunned for standing on the Word. And I'm not just talking about by the world, but by other professing believers by cults, by all types of people. And we need to understand that our foundation is, is to be built on biblical truth so that when we are attacked, when we suffer for the truth, our joy will not cease. It will actually increase. Because we will know that we are being faithful to the Savior who called us. And if He called us, He promised to never leave us. And if He called us, he is also sovereign over keeping us and directing our lives. So when we go through difficulties and adversity, it's part of his plan. It's a good plan, right? What does difficulty do? Nate mentioned that the suffering of 112 degree weather makes us now appreciate 70, right? When we go through suffering, we go through trials, when we go through persecution, when we go through difficulties, we get our mind off of trusting in this life because we know it's miserable. And we turn our minds and our thoughts toward God and the promises we have in Him. And, and let's, let's be assured of this. God, God has never promised any believer that if you come to Him, He's going to give you a happy life. He promised from the beginning, if you come to Him, you must be willing to die, take up your cross and follow Him. You must be willing to face the same kind of adversity that He faced for His glory, for His namesake. So following Christ isn't easy. Following Christ is an act of faith that God has to grant to believers. It's empowered by the Spirit of God. And it's empowered by the promises of God that are in His Word. And that's what we have in the book of Philippians. That will prepare us for difficulty. That will prepare us to be faithful when we witness in the face of adversity. If you look at your outline, I listed some verses there. This is what the book of Philippians tells us. The, the book of Philippians tells us that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. You don't see that on a lot of gospel tracks, do you? He, he, he chose to save you. He, he wants you to believe. Repent. Believe. That's great. But let's not forget the rest of this. He chose you to be His ambassadors. If the world hated Him, they're going to hate you likewise. But you know what? This world is passing away, and we know that according to Scripture. What we do in the name of Christ will remain forever. So therefore we persevere. We pursue His Word and His promise. The book of Philippians also tells us that Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, when Paul says everything, he means everything. He means his religious pedigree. He means his background. He means his human ability. He means his comfort. He means everything. I count everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus. You realize everything you have is already lost anyway, right? Everything you have, including your body, is slowly decaying. It's passing away. It is not eternal. It is temporal. Only the soul is eternal. 
And what we do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will remain forever. We've got to keep that in mind, lest this world robs us of our joy because it pulls us into it and we become identified with this world and not the world to come. Church, in a hundred years, nobody's going to know who you are. Think about that. Your grandkids won't even care. In a hundred years. But in a hundred years, if Christ has not come, He will be a faithful witness in His people as they proclaim His Word. Because His Word is eternal. We need to be faithful to that. And we need to be faithful to that even when we face adversity. That's why the next verse I have here is in 4.6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You belong to Him, so talk to Him. Share with Him what you need. Confess that you are struggling. You need His direction. He'll take your eyes off this world and He'll remove anxiety. When you go through difficulty, you begin to see what's really important. I spoke with a young man this week, and he talked about a situation in his life where everything was stripped away from him, and he began to see what was really most important, and it came down to his soul. Comfort wasn't important. Friends weren't important. Society wasn't important. But his salvation was most important. And when you face death, when you face difficulties... This is, this is what will be stripped away. All these, all these things that you know are temporal. And you know that you can go to the God that saved you, and He is eternal, and He will care for you, not just now, but for eternity. So cast your cares upon Him. And then it says in 4.7 that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting? It's not just your feelings that He's guarding. It's your thinking. If you're trusting in Him and what He will supply and what He has called you into, He will give you a peace, a reine, a peace that will guard your thinking. It will guard you from being distracted and caught up in the temporal life that we live. And this letter is where Paul says in 4.11 that he had learned in whatever situation, whatever situation he was in, he says, I am to be content. Whatever situation, and when Paul says this, it's not like you and I saying it. You know, I learned to be content in, you know, working nine to five. Uh, that's just what God's given me to do. I'm content with that. When Paul's saying this stuff, he's in a Roman prison. He's in a dungeon or he's strapped to a Roman soldier at different times. That's probably where he was at at this point. In this situation, even though I want to preach the gospel everywhere... I'm content to be here to write this letter to the church at Philippi so that God will be glorified through the church and its reception of this truth. Part of, the, part of the reason that he was locked up there at this time was so that this book could be written, so that we would be comforted by this book, just as the Philippians were. And he says in 419 that he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How did God supply for the church at Philippi? Well, it, he supplied by setting Paul down in a prison so he couldn't go anywhere until he received this news from Epaphroditus so that the Holy Spirit would inspire him to write this letter to give hope to that church. That's how God supplied the needs of the Philippians. We need to keep that in mind. God is, is doing things that we can't see all the time. He is promising things and He is providing things though we don't understand the situations. We know that He has given us this assurance. He is at work for our good and for His glory. And Philippians is evidence of that. Philippians is a Holy Spirit-inspired book written to give hope to us in the midst of difficulties. Our hope, go with me to Philippians. I'll show you where our hope is. Here's our hope. Our hope is in Philippians 1, 6. Our hope is based on Philippians 1, 6. This, this is what gives us true confidence that will cause us to persevere to the end in the face of adversity. Right here, this is it. Paul wrote this, he said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's being, that, that he is, is God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul doesn't say, I know that He who began a good work in you will make you comfortable until Jesus Christ comes. He doesn't say that. 
he's saying to them, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of the things that you will do for, for Christ's sake and suffer for, he says, I want you to know this. God hasn't left you in this good work. Even though there are going to be trials, even though there are going to be difficulties, he has not left you. He has promised to be with you. He has promised to persevere in you and complete in you his work until the day of Christ Jesus. This letter, if you want to look at your outline, this letter tells us that hope in Christ should produce at least three things. Hope in Christ should produce, number one, unquenchable joy. A joy that can't be extinguished. Hope in Christ should produce, number two, delightful humility in your service. And number three, hope in Christ should produce powerful unity in the face of all these difficulties. Powerful unity that's based on doctrine, based on truth. You can't have biblical unity apart from the Bible. Superficial unity, professed unity means nothing unless it's backed up with doctrine. He's telling them if, if you want to have humility that actually exalts Christ and you can delight in it, you want to be continually joyful and, and have it unextinguished, then you need to have biblical unity. You need to have biblical understanding of God's purposes in your life. That's what he's giving the book for. He wrote this to equip them, to edify them, to educate them. And what I love about it is, is how he starts off in, in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's writing, if you'll notice, he's writing to all those in the church at Philippi. Notice who God is addressing in this letter in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the, the saints. Those people who have been set apart by God, called by God, saved by God, set apart unto God in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. With, with the overseers and deacons. Well, he, doesn't, he doesn't address the leaders first. He addresses the church. He, he, he sees the church, and he sees the church as a group of called out people who can actually understand this biblical revelation. He writes to the church for their edification along with their pastors. He puts them on equal ground. He puts them as people who both need to be edified, equipped, and educated. And what's interesting is he's writing this to a healthy church. He's not writing to a, a sick church, a messed up church, a confused church. Though he, he gives a few warnings, there aren't any major problems really occurring in the church at this time. But he knows that if this church remains faithful to the witness that they've been called to be faithful to, they will go through times of difficulty. They will go through difficult circumstances for the glory of God. So he writes this church to encourage them and prepare them. That's, again, why we need to study the book of Philippians as a church ourselves. We, as a church, have gone through difficult circumstances. And listen, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, if we are faithful to the gospel, we are going to go through even more difficult circumstances for the glory of God. Because if you are in Christ and you want to live godly, you will be persecuted, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12. So this isn't just a letter written to this church in history. This is a letter written to the church eternal, to you and to me. If you remain faithful, you're going to face difficulties. They're coming. Be prepared. Make sure you're built on the truth, built on the hope you have in Christ. Now, I'm going to try to quickly go through three particular reasons why I think we need Philippians as a church this morning. Number one, Philippians teaches us about unquenchable joy. Paul teaches us to rejoice continually. That's what he means by this. Continually because of our hope that we have in God's providential direction. According to what he says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Philippians 1, 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, even in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, 
I'm praying for you from the very beginning. From the very beginning, I saw that you were going to partner with me. I saw that you were going to be with me, and it's my, my, my joy to pray this for you. My prayer is with joy, he says, with this emotional energy. I am praying for you and your partnership with me. And he knew if you're going to be partnered with him, you're going to go through difficulties. I mean, he's writing this to them, and he's going to go on to write about them being partners with him throughout this letter. And, and really, that's going to imply that you may end up in the same place I'm at, which is a prison for the gospel's sake. Philippians, as you read through it, it reveals to us that joy in every situation, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on, is unquenchable if it is based on God's promises. If, if, if Paul didn't know that God had promised to establish a church and to edify this church, he couldn't have written this letter with joy, with confidence, that he's going to write a letter, send it back 800 miles, hoping that that church is still in existence. He was confident. He was confident that no matter the circumstances that he's going through or they're going to go through, God will get the glory in his church. Again, he's writing this in a condition you would think he had no joy in. He, he's writing in prison, but he's writing with confidence in God's providence. He knows that God is working in his life to bring glory to his name and to edify these people, even in this circumstance. Look at three, Philippians 3, 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, there, here's what he's going to say, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings because becoming like Him in His death that by many, any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He is, he is rejoicing that he is suffering. He is rejoicing that he is going through persecution. He is rejoicing that he is going through all this for the sake of Jesus. His joy was undiminished. It was, it was continual. It was unquenchable. Because his joy was based on the promises that he had in that passage. He was drinking deeply of the well of hope here that he was in Christ and that Christ was in him, that he was assured of eternal life and he was assured that if he saved him, he would keep him and he would use him and he would work his will in him no matter the circumstances. Paul, Paul's joy here in 3.7 was anchored in heaven. It was anchored to an eternal promise that God chose him, God saved him by sending forth his son to take his place, become his substitute. And if God did that, God didn't leave him here in this shifting world, this shifting sand of temporal circumstances and pleasures to be caught up and misled and misdirected and waste his life. No, he says, I belong to Jesus and I, I, I consider losing everything else in this life as nothing compared to knowing Him and knowing that He has a plan to bring glory to His name through my life. He, he makes it clear. His relationship with Christ was His anchor in the midst of suffering. It was His anchor of joy in the midst of trials. And church, that needs to be the anchor of our joy too. Because the shifting sands of temporal pleasures are always going to change. I mean, there are going to be days in your Christian walk that you just, it's all good, right? I mean... I haven't had any major battles with sin today. I haven't had any major battles with my spouse today. I'm doing well. I've been a witness today. And then tomorrow, the shifting sand of the flesh draws you away after something that you thought you hated. And then leads to situations and circumstances that are miserable and damaging to your witness and damaging to the church. And if you didn't know that you have a forgiving God who has granted you all that you need for life and godliness in His Word through the work of His Son, you could be caught up and depressed and led away into discouragement beyond belief. 
But when you know that your confidence is that you are in Christ and your citizenship isn't here and that your salvation isn't based on your situation, it's based on the finished work of Jesus, your joy will be undiminished. It won't be able to be extinguished. So just, just ask yourself this morning, are you, are you drinking deeply from the well of hope, the well that, that fills you up with the hope and the joy that you have in Christ and His work in your behalf, His promise that He would keep you, that He would carry you home? Is that the anchor of your joy? What's the source of your joy in the midst of trials? Let me ask you this. What do you run to when you face trials and difficulties? first thing you run to will testify to what you trust in. If you run to Christ, rejoice, even in the midst of suffering. He is using your suffering for your good and for His glory because it's causing you to repent and turn back to Him. When, when you see this, when you see that your joy is in Him and that this temporal life is for Him, you will you begin to see your practical life differently. Your eternal hope is anchored in heaven and your external circumstances are conditioned by heaven. Therefore, you will consider others differently than you had before as a result of this eternal joy that you have in Christ. That's the second reason I think we need this letter here. Philippians, number two, teaches us to delight in humility. This goes against the grain of our society. This goes against the grain of American society, right? But Paul's teaching us to live sacrificially because of the hope we have in our Savior's humility. That's what it says in Philippians 2, 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of, in full accord and of one mind. So Paul, Paul's saying something there in that, 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 that passage. He's saying... Here's an eternal truth that you're in Christ. Here's an eternal truth that you're secure, that God's guiding, God's providing for you. That's an eternal anchor to the soul. We, we have that, that joy. As a result of that eternal anchor, though, he says, your thinking should be transformed. Therefore, your acting should be transformed. Your life should be transformed by the eternal joy that you have in Jesus. The eternal hope of salvation should transform our temporal condition, right? That's what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. I mean, don't do anything selfish. That's what he says. Don't do anything self-serving. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You, you want to get rid of discouragement, you think about your eternal joy in Christ, the promises of Christ you want to get rid of division in the church? You think about this. You want to get rid of both? Think about this. You start considering or counting others as more important than yourself, more significant than yourself, and the church is going to start looking like Christ. And that's what Paul's hope is. That's what Paul's joy is. He says, let, in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, have this mindset, have this thinking among yourselves, which is yours, it's already yours, this has been promised to you, this is God's provision for you in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He, this is the sovereign God of the universe, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me add to that, death by wicked men. He submitted to the Father's will, which was to allow those wicked men to do what they desired in His, his plan to accomplish our greater good, and Jesus, it says, did this, and we need to think about this. We need to let that, that thought penetrate our hearts and compel us to delight in Christ's humility by living like Jesus, living sacrificially for the good of others and the glory of God. And church, this, these are imperatives. That means these are, these are commands. These aren't suggestions. One of these days, I'm going to start considering others more, as more important than myself. And One of these days, I want to be like Jesus. One of these days, I want to walk 
like Christ walked. Now he says, do this. Have this mind, which is already yours. In other words, you've got it. You have the revelation of it. Look at it. Study it. Apply it. Do it. Because of what Christ did here in this text. Just think about what he did. Jesus, Jesus is the one who displayed what true humility is. And we should, if we say we delight in humility, if we delight in Christ, then we should want to walk like Christ. He displayed true humility. Paul teaches us here that Jesus left heaven's glory to dwell in a defiled world. To dwell here to become our substitute. To live here righteously in our place. Lived and obeyed the law of God from the heart, desiring to please the Father in every way. And just imagine the ridicule the Lord Jesus received when he was 13 years old. 13-year-olds haven't changed, okay? They were, they were like they are today, way back then, all right? They were mean. They were harsh. They cut you down. And imagine Jesus coming back from the synagogue after teaching everybody. And everybody... Everyone mocking him. Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Who do you think you are? Mocking him. Despising him. And he is receiving that in our place. What he did is what we should have done. What he did in his obedience is what we could never do because of our sin. And he humbled himself and received our ridicule, received our chastisement, not just on the cross, but throughout his life. In obedience to the Father's will, he was holy, upright, and righteous. And then, even in that, he was still hated because he exposed our sinfulness. So, like the Pharisees, if we were there, we would have said, Crucify him. He is exposing us. And Jesus, when he hears the, the verdict of crucify him, he is silent. He humbled himself by going to the cross. And there he was stripped physically and stripped of glory. He was treated like a reprobate. Dying the death that we as defiled sinners deserve to die. Humbling himself. Yet the reality of who he is hadn't changed. He was still holy. He was still set apart. He was still the Son of God incarnate. He humbled himself though for our good and for His glory. He did this so that we could receive what we needed most, which is His righteousness, His life, His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice, His peace with God. He granted to us that privilege in His humility. And if you delight in that, then you need to reflect that in the way you treat others. Are you willing to live sacrificially? The book of Philippians is calling us to do that. Are you delighting in His humility? If you're delighting in His humility, then it should transform you practically. That's what the book of Philippians teaches us. We need to remember this. We need to remember this so that it will help us as a church body to humbly, humbly unite and serve one another for the glory of Christ. What is the church called? The church, not the name of our church, but the church. What's the church called? The church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Who are we to represent in the world? Christ. We are His body, if you will, incarnate on the earth, walking about, speaking truth, expressing love, serving one another. And if, if we don't have humble unity here, we don't reflect our Redeemer. We need humble, biblical Unity. Jesus was united to the Father perfectly in doctrine and in love. And he says if we are in Him, we are united to God. And therefore, we ought to be united together as a body. That's why biblical teaching is essential in the church. If you do not have exposition and explanation of doctrine, it's not a church. It's not a church. I don't care what you title the service. The body of Christ is built on the joy that we have in Jesus because of His humble sacrifice. And that's revealed to us in Scripture 
which unites us theologically. So we need to be united. That's the third reason we need this book. Number three, Philippians teaches us about the power of unity. Paul teaches us to pursue peace and unity through our hope that we find in the knowledge of Christ doctrinally. That's what it says in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Actually, this is what Paul prayed. He prayed not that the church would be full of lovey-dovey, wonderful, nice people. That's not what he's praying for. No, he, he, his prayer of our love is contingent on the truth that establishes our love in Christ. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, notice that, circle that, with. What should your love abound with? It should abound with, he says, knowledge and all discernment. You won't love each other in difficult times. You won't love each other when you're difficult to each other unless it's agape love. And agape love is based on Christ's love. And if you don't know about Christ, if you don't know what He did, who He is, what He accomplished, you cannot love one another biblically. That's why you have to study the doctrine of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, to practically love one another. There in the knowledge of Christ, you also learn to discern truth from error. You can't have a church full of united people if one guy believes this about Jesus, another guy believes that about Jesus, and you have all this biblical error running throughout the body. Now that's a freak. That's not a body. That's a deformed child. It's not the body of Christ, which is to be pure and undefiled. We need real knowledge, biblical knowledge, and real biblical discernment so that we have a strong body, a united body. And he says in verse 10, here's why. It, 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 the knowledge and the love is supposed to do something. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 11 says, filled, it means to be controlled with. You cannot be controlled properly unless you have biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge and discernment that makes you pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If you have a church divided doctrinally and not based on truth that they've grown in together in the Word of God, they'll be filled with all kinds of things, but it won't be the fruit of righteousness. So what we think about, what we ponder, what we study, what we meditate affects the way we operate as a church. And as we grow in doctrine, we'll grow in love. As we grow in biblical discernment, we'll grow in purity. And we will grow in the fruit of righteousness. And God is pleased with that. God wants us to do that. The letter of Philippians reveals that God wants His people united powerfully and doctrinally. That's what He's saying here. He wants us to pursue biblical unity. And I think that he wants this so that we would be protected against discouragement and division. Without this, without this prayer, Paul knew this church would grow discouraged and there would be divisions. He addresses divisions at the very end of the book. He tells them, deal with it, guys. Deal with it. They're, they're two sisters. They love Jesus, but they're, they're bickering. They're causing divisions. There's something going on. So deal with these guys, okay? Deal with this. So there will be biblical unity. We don't skirt around divisions. We deal with them biblically. And if, if we don't deal with them, discouraging events and divisions will dominate the church. And there will not be joy. There will not be humility. There will not be Christ-exalting service. We want, we want to be united. We want to be directed. So it will prevent discouragement so that we will consider others as more important than ourselves, so that we will grow in biblical truth that exalts Jesus as a body. That's what God wants. And if we do that, I believe it will humble us to think that God chose you. All the saints, not at Philippi, but at Sovereign Grace. God addressed you in this book. He says, I want you. I want you. Verse 9, it's my prayer for sovereign grace that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled 
with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, sovereign grace. That's what his prayer is for you. That's God's prayer for you. It's God's desire. He wants us to be united in love and for it to abound, but it has to be tied to real knowledge and all discernment that's found in his word. 10 and 11 tell us that. It tells us that he wants us to abound and grow in unity that is pure, powerful, right? And it's protective. Protects us against this discouragement and division that Paul knows will be facing this church. What's interesting here, if you go over to 127 to 30, you see a connection with the historical context when Paul writes this. See, he says in 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul, in that passage, is calling for the church that he prayed for there in verses 9-11. through He's calling for them to be united like Roman soldiers going into battle. That's what this reference is all about. He's calling for them to be controlled by the joy they have in God's promises, equipped by the humility of mind they have because of Christ's work, and united in their purpose according to this passage. One mind, you see that in verse 27? One mind, thinking, pondering about the true joy that they have in Christ, their confident assurance of salvation based on God's promises. Stand firm in that. Then he says, do it side by side. What's that imply? All the saints and the overseers? Wait a minute. Not overseers, saints? No, side by side in humility. Stand firm in humility as one body, one church, humbled by the joy you have in Christ, humbled by Jesus' sacrifice, united in His purpose, which is to glorify God on the earth. Church, Philippians is telling us to rejoice in that. Philippians tells us to rejoice in this truth that will protect us from pride. It will promote peace. It'll cause the name of Christ to be exalted here on earth. That's what Philippians teaches us. That's what we need to learn from this book. That's what I want to learn from this book. And I want us to grow in this. I want us to grow like Roman soldiers together. When the Roman soldiers went into battle, they were one. One in mind, one in action. And they were hard to defeat. When it talks about them standing firm, they actually had cleats that kept them from sliding. We have that too. It's the gospel. Our feet should be shod with the gospel. That should keep us from slipping and being discouraged because it reminds us of the promises. It reminds us of Christ's humility. It reminds us of the doctrine that God revealed to us in Scripture. Let me end with this in, in chapter 4 of Philippians 4.6. Tie up our, in our overview here. Paul ends this letter this way. This is something to think about as we leave here this morning. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned, that implies thinking, that implies doctrine. What you have learned and received and heard and and seen, he's seen, they've seen it practically lived out. 
what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Suffering for Christ. Imprisoned for Christ. Rejoicing in his imprisonment. Humbled by Christ. He says, practice these things. Practice these things. Live this out. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. Church, as we live this out, the God of peace promises to be with us. As we go through difficulties, as we stand firm in the truth, the God of peace promises to stand with us. I just want you to understand something. This week, as I begin to think about this text and begin to think about the lost people that I know and that you know, they're looking for a people who will stand firm. The lost world has no stability. They see nothing but compromise. They see nothing but selfishness. And when, when the church stands up and is uncompromising and stands firm in the truth and reaches out, even in persecution, lost people respect that. Lost people will listen. And God may use that to convert the heart of someone like a Philippian jailer or a religious person like Lydia, or a demon-possessed girl. Because when we stand firm, when we stand firm, we're standing firm in the gospel. That's what we're unwavering about. That's what we're, we are rejoicing in. That's what we are humbled by. That's what we're united in. And church, I'm going to tell you, when the world sees it, now there's a part of them that hates it, but they know that there's something to it. They can't deny it. It's eternal. It's true. The Word of God doesn't go out void. It has a purpose. And the unbeliever, his conscience may be pricked. His, un, his unregenerate soul may, may rebel against it, but he knows it's true. He knows it's true. He can't deny it. It's the living Word of God. But God chose for that living Word to be on display through a living church. A living church that rejoices in His truth. So let's pray that we'll be that as we study Philippians. Next week, we'll actually begin a verse-by-verse sequential exposition of this text in detail. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have, you have not left us to fend for ourselves. You have not left us to hope in our feelings or to rejoice in circumstances of this life. We, we know that you have given us a more sure word. You have given us a divine revelation of your will and your promise and your power. So, Lord, we thank you for what we have in Christ. We thank you for the gospel that opened our eyes to see the glory of our Savior and to see the depth of our sin and to see the grace that is extended because of your great promises in Christ. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for hope when we go through difficulties. Thank you for promising us and faithfully exhibiting to us that you are with us in the worst of situations and that you are at work in those bringing your name glory and bringing good about in our life. Help us, Lord, to remember that as we struggle. Remember that as we face difficulties. Let us come back to what unites us to you, which is the truth of your revelation and grace in Christ. I pray that you be glorified in that today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Table, Jesus, thank you. 